John 9 is on the heels of this great festival, uh, a festival of, of uh, Sukkot or, or tabernacles. And in, in, this, in this festival of Sukkot, we, we had a lot of material. Uh, and it's, it's probably the, the, the biggest and most pronounced festival at, at that time in Israel, even bigger than Passover and Pentecost. Because so much is condensed in that period of time, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It all happens during that period of time. And, and now we're making our way out of that time period, which is mid-September. And the next thing that we have as a date in the Gospel of John is mid-December. And that'll be in, in the very beginning of John chapter 10. So where we fall in this is probably somewhere right on the heels of Tabernacles or, or somewhere in between that, that time period of, let's say, September uh, 25th and November, uh, I'm sorry, December 25th. So somewhere along the line here. But we have a, a couple stories that prepare us for the final week of Jesus's life. And there are a few more things that John wants to curate and provide to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to make sure that we're getting the full-orbed picture of God's great plan to redeem all of us. And so, here we go, starting in verse 1. As he went along, he saw, this is Jesus, saw a man blind from birth. You don't often get that description. You don't get it in the Gospels, except here. You'll get it twice over in uh, Acts 3 and Acts 14, of a man lame from birth and another disability from birth. But this is the only one that Jesus will encounter that has been designated as one who has been in some way marginalized to this degree from birth. It'll prove to be rather pivotal. I think that's why they include it, of course. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night's coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Sometimes we get desensitized to the profound, provocative statements that Jesus makes. He's already made quite a few, including this one just a chapter ago. But this statement, if any of you were to make it, would cause us to wonder what you had for breakfast. Right? If Mark Seafeld suddenly stood up among all of us and said, I am the light of life. I am the light of the world. And yet the darkness cannot comprehend me. And we would say, with good reason. <laughs> so, again, let's not get de desensitized to this situation and how Jesus is laying it down in a way that is meant to radically disrupt. He's not just disrupting by disrupting the natural laws in order to perform a great miracle, but he's also disrupting intentionally to get everyone's attention. After saying this, after saying, I am the light of the world to a, to a blind man. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva. I like the King James. It says spittle there. <laughs> and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Big deal. Yeah. 
His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't that the same guy who used to sit and beg? Some claimed he was. Others said, nah, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. That comes across different today than probably him just really corroborating, yes, indeed, I'm that guy. But how then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. There's a lot of questions in this first half of the chapter. Some of these questions we're going to wrestle with, because some of them are very hard questions. And I don't want to just gloss over these things. But at, at midweek, we will really wrestle with this. We're going to get into our small groups. We're going to fight this sort of stuff out. Look at, is God the author of evil? Some passages seem to kind of indicate that maybe he is. Uh, does God have a plan for evil? Is guilt the cause of evil? Is your sin going to have a cause and effect that will result in this as these questions are being asked before them? And in all of these things are that for all ages, the most intense and most difficult questions with which to wrestle. Uh, title of the sermon today is Spiritual Blindness. But in order to see what Jesus is doing here through this disruption, it is quite important that we confront in ourselves and each of the people in this story confront in themselves spiritual blindness. Now, again, we will wrestle with the big why questions in just a little bit. What I want to consider here today, because it'll carry us through the rest of this story, is what Jesus has done is done with great deliberation in order to stop the presses and cause everyone to sit up and take notice that something radical is here for your benefit and hopefully to fling your eyes open from spiritual darkness to light. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees this disruption, the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Dun, 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 dun. Therefore, the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight, wondering, was there a little work involved? Well, he put mud on my eyes, the man replied. I washed. And now I see. Some of the fairies said, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. Big miracle. Off the charts miracle has just occurred. Not just some random miracle, but this, this miracle is in the most positive sense of the word, a dog whistle put in here that would help us to realize that the Messiah might just be among us. Why is that? Because one of the most definitive, famous, cherished passages in all the Old Testament pointing to the day when the Deliverer, when all things will be made new, when everything is going to come around as we've prayed, is Isaiah 35. Stay right here. I'm just going to read from that for you. In Isaiah 35, this looking forward to the Messiah, Isaiah writes, Strengthen feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. 
Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. For an oppressed people, this is a very dear passage. Maybe as, as precious as any, as they persevere through long-suffering and patience, as others up here have done. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Everything that has just gone down in the last couple days, in the last couple months of Jesus' life, all point to Isaiah 35 in Him. And among those that would know best, they should be appreciating more than any other. Wait, you're telling me that a man blind from birth has been given sight? This can only mean one thing. Should be their thought. Instead of, let's parse some ways that we can negate this. Why? Because Jesus has already given them enough cause for concern of the threat that he represents to them. And, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. But, but, but know that when, when this is being laid down, and now I see, should have just the opposite response. But instead, verse uh, 16 this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others asked, well, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes that he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still didn't believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Well, we know he's our son, the parents answered. We know he was born blind. But, uh, humana, humana, how he can see now? Uh, or who opened his eyes? Uh, we don't know. Uh, ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind, who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth. This is an interesting phrase. Today we would kind of use the phrase, swear on this Bible that you're telling the truth. Give glory to God is what is used of Achan when he is caught with the idol in Joshua chapter seven. And when Joshua brings him in order to kind of clear himself and to testify the, that phrase, give glory to God means make sure you speak the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That is the way that you would say that in, in the first century here. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said, we know this man is a sinner. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now he realizes that he, they're trying to get him to talk about the Sabbath one more time. And this man may have been blind, but he's savvy. 
And I love the fact that he doesn't go into all of the logistics of the Sabbath uh, event. So instead he says, verse 27, I've told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? (laughs) Then they hurled insults at him and said, oh, so you're this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. (laughs) I love this guy. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. And that is the word to expel someone from the synagogue and community. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Again, that's the phrase that Daniel 7 uses of this divine figure that Jesus is now claiming to be. Do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Seen. Well, it's interesting when something unmistakably godly divine disrupts your life. And you have to contend with it. When there's a person that God puts in your path that is so clearly different. And it's meant to get under your craw, to be that splinter in your mind. Not giving you peace until you reckon how can something so astounding, so out of the norm, be explained. You know, it was a little while back that uh, Mary Lou Horrigan, who, who we know co-leads our SAGE women's group, uh, you know, when, when her daughter, Tess, had been disrupted by Jesus and really decided to go from the polite little kind of churchianity that was their life to suddenly blossom into full orb, full on, no holds barred Jesus full-on discipleship of Jesus, Mary Lou didn't say, oh, look at you. Clean up your act, young lady. Look at the zeal you, look at you, you're carrying your Bible. No, Mary Lou was like, whoa, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean you're not going to kind of continue in the churchianity that was our comfortable little existence here? 
What do you mean that you've had this breakthrough? What about all that I've equipped you with? What do you mean that suddenly you have eyes that can see? What do you, and, and Mary Lou, rather than being astounded by this, decided that my daughter must have gotten involved in some sort of a cult. <laughs> and that's how she explained it away. And, and, and as a result, she then went to, to join her in fellowship. And all of those initial visits were for one reason, to try and debunk and disprove, find the chinks in the armor of this whole new kind of system of Jesus that she is now claiming is the way that she's going to live her life. Now, the beautiful part about Mary Lou's story is, is at the end of the day, she allowed that light to really pierce her. John 1, you know, this story is, so many of the stories that we read are all go back to the prologue, the prologue of the first paragraph or two of John. And, and in the prologue, it says this about Jesus. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness cannot comprehend it. Or the darkness cannot overcome it, depending on how you understand the, the wording there. And, and this is exactly what's happening in this story. This is exactly what happened in Mary Lou's life. That for the longest time, light shone forth into her life. But it was just so difficult to deal with. Because it was so foreign to the way that she made sense of all things divine. Of all things religion. Of all things Jesus, even. So absolutely different. It was, it was difficult. And, and even though light had come into the world, light had come into her daughter's life. Her daughter was not the same person anymore. But this light was a verdict, John says. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so this morning, we're going to deal with this light that has come into our life. This disrupting light that is coming to you courtesy of the Holy Spirit through the Gospel of John and is being brought now to us to see what way will we respond. Will it be with spiritual blindness? Or will we, like this man at the end, really surrender all of our prejudices and preconceptions, presuppositions, in order to really fall at Jesus' knees, maybe for the first time ever, with sincerity of heart, and worship Him and recognize this is the Christ the Son of the living God. Amen. And so as we deal with this, the first thing that we've got to look at in terms of spiritual blindness is ignorance that blinds us. And in some cases, this ignorance, for me, was willful ignorance. I knew there was a Bible there. I knew it defined what it was to be aligned with Jesus. I knew that it really did have a depth of great treasure. And I, I had that sense that was there. I even knew that this disrupting neighbor of mine probably had it on straight. Unlike almost anybody else, by the way, that I had met, including all the folks that I was warming a pew with, 
because we did other things together as well uh, that, that were in no way godly. But this guy, this guy, this neighbor, he, so annoyingly disruptive and he was always there. It was this Ned Flanders figure. <laughs> Smile all the time, howdly doodly. And like, ah. Oh. Like, he keeps showing up. You shop at this grocery store? You tracking me? What's going on here? And, uh, but, but for me, I, I just wanted to keep him at arm's length. Like, I didn't really want to know much more about him. And I didn't want to know much more about this Bible that he kept wanting me to study. Because I knew, uh, there was something deep inside I knew that once that light hits, the cockroaches of my life are going to get exposed. And, and I was scattering with all that I had every time that light started getting anywhere near me uh, to get out of its path completely. And, and I'm not sure where you're, where you're at right now, but do you have a sense of what maybe gives you peace and contentment and right standing before a holy, holy, holy God, the, 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 the judge of, of, of all? Do you have a, a sense that what really kind of aligns you and gives you justified standing? And if you do, how did you come to that conclusion? What was the journey of discovery through the Bible that brought you to that place? If you can't describe the clarity with which you saw that, and perhaps even the way that it was able to be pushed against in a variety of ways, and still nonetheless be able to stand on the Word of God through all of that, well then, let me suggest that maybe you, like I, have a bit of a willful ignorance that is allowing you to keep on keeping on. Maybe it's allowing you to create gray areas in a relationship with your sweetie pie. Maybe the two of you have crossed boundaries that are in no way pleasing in the sight of God. And even though, as Proverbs 5.21 says, God examines all your paths, yes, even when you were in the car last week with her, yes, the God knows, he, he knows all our ways, that, that despite all that, you're going to kind of happily pretend that, man, maybe not, I don't know, do I really want to know? Why? Because just it's a, it's a shallow, fleshly, keep on keeping on. And, and let me encourage you. That's, that's sure, that's spiritually myopic, it's spiritually blind, but it's also cotton candy satisfaction. And, and what it is that you think that you're preserving God wants to give you a hundred times as much. A hundred times a, a deeper appreciation, a deeper intimacy, a deeper significance. It all awaits if only you'd allow the veil of ignorance to fall away. And there's such a simple way where that can occur. It's right here. Right here. But, by the way, it's, it's very helpful to do this not on your own. Because the same preconceptions, the same filters that you're applying to keep your life the way that it is, will be the filters that you apply when you read. So I would encourage you, read with other people that actually have no doubt are, are radicalized by Jesus, in the best sense of that word. And, and that you know that they are. I remember for me, 
oh my goodness, the, the, the real difficulty was sitting down in this group Bible study with a bunch of guys in my neighborhood where I lived in North Texas, uh, 1992 or three, when this occurred. And, and I, the one thing that I remember that was so disruptive to me is we started talking about things like pornography and masturbation. And, you know, and they said it as simply as that. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, what are we going to talk about? I thought we were going to talk about love and, you know, kind of like peace, whole, like Bible words, not pornography and masturbation. Where, where'd this come from? I'm like, ah, the light is shining. And, and you know, each, each person, and, and, and it was my, my kind of time, you know, kind of as each person was sharing a bit for, for me to share it. And I remember each of those fellas had a very real story to tell of how they had been so radically changed by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. And that none of them, none of them, right? it's like, like five guys in this room. None. I was like, certainly the next. I mean, look at this guy. Certainly, that, that guy's been looking at some nasty. Come on, hey, every one of them. Every one. I'm like, they went, no, you know, no. I mean, praise God. It's not not that I'm all that, but praise God that, that He really has delivered me out of that wreckage. No, I I, I haven't seen you know one. I haven't seen pornography in you know five years. Ever since you know, I really repented. I haven't seen it in 17 years, ever, ever since I ever, haven't seen it since college when I really became a Christian. That was the story all the way around. And I was like, uh, humana, humana, humana. I've seen it every day for the last 17 years of my life was, was, was where I was at at that moment. But nonetheless, interestingly, coming to this Bible study as, and I'm a Christian too. But there was something else that was, was also kind of willful ignorance is they kept using this word that I viewed to be an awkward, weird, oddly religious word, disciple. They kept saying disciple again and again. I was like, come on. What? There's something really odd about you guys. And why was that? Because of my willful ignorance. And I didn't realize that the word Christian is only in the Bible three times. Disciple, when it applies, is almost 300 times. It's a 100 to 1 ratio. And here I am sitting in judgment of them. Why do you got to use that word? What's wrong with you jokers, man? What? You, you go ahead and be disciples. I'm just a good old Christian guy who has playboys stacked up in the back of my house. <laughs> like, oh, what, I mean, how, how just ridiculous you know, can you construct such a thing? But willful ignorance does exactly that. You know, so there's some crowds here that are willfully ignorant. Ah, I don't know if he's the guy or not. Kind of looks like him. Maybe looks like why? Why not just go all in and say, it's the guy, it's the guy. Isaiah 35, Isaiah 35, it's happening right here. Why? Because if Jesus turns out to be the guy, there's a lot that comes with Jesus that is going to cause you to rearrange. Amen. And even as you're here now, if, if you're kind of dragging your feet of really going all in with this, wow, wow, what that will mean to you. But that's not the only blindness that we confront here. Jesus confronts, and John brings it home for us in his gospel, the blindness that comes from fear. And if ignorance is being blissfully blind, well, then fear is being timidly blind. And we know who we're talking about in this passage, isn't it? It's the parents. The parents who are so afraid of being, being put out 
of the synagogue. They know the threat of anyone saying that Jesus is the Messiah. Because it's already been made plain by this point in time. By this point in time, the Pharisees have already said, anybody claims this, you are put out. Now, it's not like being, let's say, put out of here, for example, right? You get put out of here. It's not like, oh, can I still go to the royal farms over there uh, anymore? Uh, you know, I like the Wawa, but that's kind of... But no, the, I mean, so somebody's not part of a church today. We don't really appreciate what it would be like to be put out of a synagogue then. To be put out of a synagogue then didn't just mean that you weren't coming to the services. It didn't mean that suddenly you can catch up on Wednesday night TV and Sunday morning uh, talking heads on the political scene or in a couple weeks. NFL. <laughs> bum, 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 bum. It doesn't mean that that's what you get. If you were put out then, you were put out of the community. And it was so intense that not just social standing, livelihood, maybe even your own lives end up being on edge and at stake. But they were so anxious that they were prepared to let their own son face the full brunt of the questioning rather than themselves. That's like a gunman coming into a mall and grabbing your kid. And putting them in front of you. And that's weak sauce. That's repulsive. But that's what fear can do. Even to some of the, the best of us. He's grown up. He can speak for himself. Maybe. But that's not what a loving parent would have said here. But the fear was. Is that. It was so intense. That they might as well just pack up and leave. But that's what's at stake for them. And. You know, for many of us, there's a real fear if you become full-on Jesus' disciple. You do that, and suddenly some relationships are going to be rearranged at the core level. Maybe even so to the degree that they may need to even be separated for a bit in order for that stuff to come together in the right way. Because it's been built on such a faulty foundation. The only way to reclaim it is to perhaps both both parties to just get it together with Jesus and then come together again. I know for me, the one thing that that I was afraid of was how I was going to look to everyone in the corporate ladder that was ahead of me at at the company where I worked at the time. Because I was a selfishly ambitious ladder climber. And what what if I'm suddenly viewed as the Jesus freak? Rather than that really cool guy who sometimes goes to church just enough to be considered a man with a bit of character. That's all I wanted. Just enough, Jesus, to kind of you know, continue advancing and not be seen as the immoral clod that I really was. But, but what if that? You know, suddenly there's a lot at stake and there's some fear that can come into play when that comes again. But I think even more importantly is what if it has some sort of a fissure in our family? Like that's a big one. I know that when when I really became a, a Christian, my goodness, my my grandma, who was like the matriarch that that I just thought the sun rose and set on her. I mean, she was amazing in every way, came from Lithuania, built a great life, decided to set our family in the promised land of, of New Jersey. 
I mean, man, oh man, nanny, lanny, what a, what a woman. But, you know, when I became a Christian, oh my goodness, we had never had really a, a, a sideways, sideways word one to another. And suddenly that relationship was busted up. And I remember just holding my head in my hands and how did, wow, wow, how did this ever happen? She, she, she at first tried to like entice me because she had money. Entice me that, hey, um, maybe if you don't do this Jesus thing, I, I might help you with that country club membership. You know, so you can golf on Sundays. That was laughable. Uh, and, and, then, and then it was, well, you're out of the will. You're out of the will. And I, I, I don't want to see my money go somewhere where it ends up being wasted on some person who's in some sort of a Jesus freak movement. So she didn't use those words because she's Lithuanian and wouldn't know those words. She said, what is this, this Bible stuff? And, and for what? what? I go to that church and he, for what? The man screams. He screams every word. Wait, for, for what we do this? No, 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 no. Not, not for you. Anyway, that's how she would have said it. But what's your fear? Well, what's the fallout that's going to occur if you really show yourself to be full on Jesus? What is that in compared to the beauty of really having Jesus as your Lord. And then finally, pride. You know, it's, it's difficult, of course, for these Pharisees because they're good at what they're good at. They're good at religion. They're good at God. And sometimes being good at God makes it near impossible to really set that aside and have a paradigm shift that allows you to see as you're meant to see. And, and I know that there's different levels of difficulty of really allowing yourself to be proven wrong. And they're going to have to be proven wrong here. Now, it's one thing to admit, I'm a sinner. That, that doesn't take too much humility. I don't think there's too many people here that would stand and say, Oh, not me. I'm not a sinner. But you know what takes even more humility? To actually share how you've sinned, specifically. And not 10 years ago, in the last 10 days. And I think if, if that's what's going on in your life, you're busting up pride in a really good way. You're, you're bringing it before Christ in, in the right way. But again, hard, I'm a sinner. Nah, not so. A little bit harder, here's how I've sinned. But this is the hardest one. And this is the one that is at stake at them. And this is the one that's taken every single person sitting here. Not that I'm a sinner. Not that I've sinned. But that I am wrong. I am wrong about the way that I make sense of how someone is made right before God. The way that I've understood it is now coming into conflict with what the scripture itself says. My goodness, if you're not willing to go to that place and to go to that place hard with the Bible and with others that are gonna really bring some good, biblically sound challenges, then it might be that you end up at the end of the day with Jesus saying, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. It's a frightened place because not only were they wrong, but they constructed a system within which they will never see that they are wrong. It's one thing to be genuinely mistaken, to be open to new evidence, new arguments, new insights. But it's another to create a closed world in which no light, no fresh air, can come in from the outside. But rather than that, what God wants for you, why he's disrupting you, why he's bringing you here, 
Why Jesus healed that man born blind is he wants you to see. He wants you to see the beauty of the life that he has for you. He wants you to see the love unfiltered that he's willing to give to you repeatedly, continually. He wants to be your advocate before God even now. He wants you to be set free from the shackles of repetitive sin that still enslave you. He wants you to know integrity in your soul. All of this disruption is for this in your life. Let me encourage you with this final challenge. Jesus wants you to be set free. And he wants you to be a disruption to the world around you. If you're not at the point where Jesus has done something amazing in your life, well then get with someone and say, help me to see. But if he has done that, and you know that you have been radically transformed and you see, well then this week, honor that. Honor what Jesus has done and go tell someone exactly what Jesus has done for you. Be a disruption, be a miracle that is meant to extend what it is that Jesus is intending to do. 